Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. FIS is fully functional. Every broker, every office, and every team is ready to help you with pricing, research, and operational assistance. Hello and welcome again to another sunny day in London, uh, another Wednesday morning. Uh, we are introducing again our regular guests, Alex, Kerry and Tom. You all know, the, know them very well uh, by now. And we also have a special guest, Julie Arnold, who's our independent energy market consultant. Thank you very much for joining me, everyone. Good morning. Hi, morning. Good morning, everybody. So morning. let's uh, go over an overview of what we're, we're looking at this week. So we have a very packed podcast we have our, obviously our special guest who's bringing expertise on the power markets. We have our usual overview of the latest trends and news in the market commodity uh, markets that we cover here at FIS. And we also have a special feature on the Japanese power market before ending with our bit of fun, the random market of the week. And Kerry, you have, again, some great news in terms of the app. Exactly. The FIS app, uh, FIS Live system, I should say, is now live. Uh, not only that, but uh, it started with a bang. We've got uh, hundreds of registered users already logged on. And uh, once again, for anyone who wants to receive real-time live pricing, historical price charting, uh, real-time news feed on the products that we cover, along with all the FIS research and commentary in one place, uh, to register for that three-month free trial, go to freightinvestorservices.com forward slash FIS live. Uh, and you can get all the information there and go ahead and register for that uh, for that free trial. Cool. Thank you, Kerry. Right. Let's dive into the news stories, which everyone's picked for this week. Alex, let's start with you. You've picked one about employers paying for people's rent. Well, it came out in a German language newspaper actually earlier this week, um, and it's reported that Switzerland's top court has ruled that employers are required to contribute to employees' rent payments if they're expected to work from home. The article's very clear. If you choose to work from home or, or your job actually is from home, that doesn't count. But if your employer is asking you to stay at home, especially during these times, the Swiss courts have ruled that they should contribute towards that cost. Um, so uh, this, this seems to be actually, in my mind, actually a fairly sensible ruling. Um, but I can see why some people would be glad that the Swiss aren't members of the EU, as this could set a pretty dangerous precedent for some of the economies, some of the smaller economies across Europe that may actually reel from this if, if uh, companies had to contribute to people being at home. So I think it's an interesting one to keep an eye on, and we'll see if that, has, uh, if that spreads or, or sort of influences any other countries across Europe or the world. It's true. It's a fact that I don't think we should be uh, allowing John to uh, listen to this week's podcast. He might have a heart attack, especially if we're promoting such things like this. Uh, but it is another example of the kind of unprecedented things which are being brought to the surface because of, of this crisis that we're having. But let's take uh, a detour towards uh, Tom's news story of the week, where you have picked up on um, the Twitter branding Trump's tweet with a fact-checking warning. Yeah, so I've uh, taken over Kerry's mantle of, uh, uh, sorry, Alex's mantle of uh, of uh, highlighting when Mr. Trump and, and his tweets are affecting global markets, but uh, slightly different this week. Uh, so yes, it's a BBC article uh, essentially stating that Twitter have uh, 
flagged one of Mr. Trump's uh, posts as essentially fake news, or uh, they are unable to verify the uh, veracity of the comments within the tweet. Um, so this tweet is about the potential postal votes uh, in the run-up to the US election in November, uh, and Trump stating that essentially they will be uh, substantially fraudulent. Um, so it's been... Uh, been slapped with a fake news warning uh, for the Twitter viewers to determine for themselves whether they think this is factual or not, and has obviously um, picked up a fairly uh, bolshy response from Trump and his election team. Um, so, with reference to us, uh, quite interesting to see um, how Trump's tweets moving forward may impact global markets if they are being branded as fake news uh, moving forward and if they'll have the same impact on on the, the markets that he's had the ability to affect moving forward. Yeah, I guess it's a point where, I mean, you look at the oil, ma oil markets themselves and something, we have a huge movement in it. And the first thing you do is go straight to Twitter and check what uh, our good friend, <laughs> Mr. President, has said. Um, I don't think this is going to be impacting or going to be changing the fact that uh, if he says something, it's going to be impacting markets. But it is a, a move towards... Um, and it might might diffuse the power yeah. of his tweets somewhat. Yeah, only thing yeah. is, you'd aggravate him more than anything. It, 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 it whether you believe he's going to go ahead and base his policy on that fake news, <laughs> regardless of whether or not it's proven yeah. to be fake. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The, the world's most powerful man. I don't think you uh, really want to be telling him what to do. But uh, talking of power, um, Julie, why don't I bring you in on your news story that you've picked up on? Yeah, I wanted to bring in a power-based news story, which is why I wanted to talk about negative power prices in the UK recently. I'm sure you all heard the news reports recently of the negative oil prices, which was making the main news stories. Well, negative prices in power markets is not such a new thing. It has been happening for a number of years in Germany, typically because they've got such a large proportion of wind generation. Now you get these negative prices when when we have demand that is low and the supply is high and it's mm -hmm. difficult to reduce the supply. So typically big fossil fuel generators such as coal generators would find it difficult sometimes to switch off quickly enough when the wind or the wind's blowing or the sun's shining a great deal all at the same time. Um, so renewable energy makes negative power prices more common. So the more proportion of renewable energy we get, the higher the likelihood is that we'll get the sun shining at the same time, the winds blowing that coinciding with low demand. And it's become prominent recently because the behavior the, that's been caused by the COVID crisis has meant that demand, power demand has been a lot lower than, than normal. So it's really given me a lot of thought about, it's like a snapshot of what the market could be like in the future when we get an even higher proportion of renewable generation. And we've had, especially on the bank holidays recently, and the, this weekend just gone and the earlier bank holiday at the start of May, a lot more negative prices than we would normally have. And that just led me to think about the implications of what that means going forward. It's sending quite a big signal really to battery makers and battery, battery technology is what's needed to take advantage of those negative prices, which then leads on to potentially more investment in electric vehicles, which could happen sooner than everybody thought if the negative prices are happening more frequently. 
So every time you get a negative price, you're getting paid to use the energy and hence you're getting free or you're getting paid to charge up your batteries for your electrical vehicles. And that has to be a good thing. Um, and finally, the, the last thing I would probably think about that is that it's sending a big single signal to the oil guys as well. So if petrol usage is going to decline because we're getting more and more electrical vehicles, it's going to have massive impacts on their the businesses and their companies. So I wonder what these guys are going to start doing to diversify out of oil. In terms of what you talk about there, Julie, it, the WTI one story that came out earlier on uh, in the month, that was something which quite shocked quite a lot of people. And you're yeah. saying that it's a lot more common in the energy markets. That's because they're a problem with the fact that you can't store as much energy compared to, to oil. Yeah, so a lot of power markets are priced either on an hourly basis or a half hourly basis. And that is because you can't really store power as a fish as easily as you can in some of these physical storable commodities. So it has been around for quite a few years and it's not every day that you get negative prices. So typically the time when you'll get it, it's often on a Sunday when factories are closed and, and people are using less energy generally for businesses. And if you get a very windy su Sunday or a very sunny Sunday now, um, which coincides with low demand, it is quite frequently you will get negative prices. Um, and, and that's been happening a lot more like this weekend just gone for most of the night on, I think it was Saturday and Sunday night, you got negative prices for the majority of the night time. So that would have been a fantastic time for anyone to charge up batteries or, you know, there's recently uh, articles in the news about Octopus Energy and they've been paying uh, residential customers to use energy when the price is negative. They're only paying them a small amount of money, but it's just an idea of what the world could look like in the future. Yeah. Tom, you wanted to come in on this. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I was reading recently that the UK is going through its sort of longest um, spell of not using any any coal. Is that uh, for its sort of electricity generation? Is that is that still continuing or has it has that record been stopped now? Oh, I don't know whether it's actually still going on. I know at the time I remember reading it was 18 days it had gone on for. Um, not sure I think it was much longer than that. What the final uh, total ended up being. Okay. But that, that's an but indication of what I mean, too. you know, when I said yeah. about it's what we're seeing now with the reduced demand because of COVID, what it's effectively done is taken the coal plant out of the stack. So it's changed the proportion of renewable energy. So renewable energy has gone up as a percentage of the total amount of energy so much that it's giving us this more volatility from half hour to half hour so you get a high price then followed by a negative price um just one question for me does this mean that we should be keeping a bigger eye on the lithium market if there's going to be a progression towards ba uh, increased battery storage yeah i would have thought so i'm not a lithium expert but i think it's all about batteries i really do okay not a lithium expert yet julie you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day Let's move things swiftly on. Um, we were talking about the COVID-19 crisis. Let's go to the heart of where that started. Kerry, you've got a story from China and their stimulus policy looking more strained than we thought. I know this is something that you have brought up quite a lot in your analysis of, of uh, the iron ore market, steel and freight. So it'd be good to hear some more on this. Absolutely. I think a lot of people were expecting you know, the, uh, the, the National People's Congress meeting, which took place last week, uh, to kick off and proceed with a lot of announcements of 
very, very substantial stimulus programs, uh, both on the credit side uh, and in terms of direct infrastructure investment. Um, but instead, it took a much, much more restrained approach than I think most people expected. Uh, you saw virtually no credit stimulus whatsoever. Uh, they just did not signal any real loosening uh, on a large scale. Uh, and their infrastructure investment by Chinese standards was more moderate than what we probably expected. Uh, I believe they only increased railway spending, for example, by 100 billion yuan over the previous year. So, uh, you know, even with those relatively moderate moves, it's worth noting that China's forecasting uh, an 11% uh, negative uh, fiscal balance this year, 11% uh, of GDP. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> one could argue that, you know, are we coming to the, er the end of the era of these massive uh, Chinese credit-based stimulus packages and, uh, you know, and it's the beginning of a change in the way that they stimulate their economy. And I'd swiftly to move on from the news stories, I've got my final one, which I picked up on uh, the story about the protests in Hong Kong, which kind of brings a couple of strands that we've been talking about together. So it's obviously protests which have been triggered by the, the debate on the, the anthem law, which uh, pro-democracy groups are pointing towards this can be used as a more authoritarian measures. And it's just the start of the slippery slope towards China taking over completely of what should be two systems, one country it will become one country, one system. And I guess one of the biggest problems here is the fact that Trump has responded in, in this kind of debate now. And it does look like it's just starting to become a kind of proxy war for the, the US China. It was on trade and all the discussions that they've had previously over much of, of last year and into this year. And again, they're talking about you know, warning China, putting these uh, laws into place. And what Tom picked up on uh, last week about Singapore now looking with, with hungry eyes going, well, if Hong Kong's having all these problems, we could be taking the, the financial hub away from them in Asia. So let's move quickly on to markets. Um, Tom, let's come back to you and talk about iron ore. What are we seeing there in the oil markets this week? Uh, well, finally, the sort of bull run—not <laughs> bull run—but the, the price support that we've been uh, that we've been seeing on on iron ore has uh, seemingly come to an end, uh, or temporarily halted, uh, depending on on what happens in the next week or so. But um, the the sort of charge higher has has stopped um, relatively abruptly uh, at the start of this week, albeit having had a slight recovery um, this morning. So. We're down from around 96.15 to around 94.5 mark on the index at the moment. So um, I think what Kerry was just touching on with the MPC, uh, people were probably expecting much stronger stimulus coming out of out of China with regards to that. Um, so expecting to see much more of a drive um, to support industry there. Um, so questions unanswered, I think, um, around how that will play out and how it will impact the industry moving forward. Um, there is still the supply side issue that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, uh, if not longer now, uh, with regards to Brazil and South America now being very much the COVID hotspot of the world um, and the sort of leadership in Brazil being fairly absent with regards to any form of policy to to pull them out of it in a meaningful and efficient way. Um, vale hasn't adjusted their production target as yet, but I, I think that is probably 
far bit from me saying inevitability, but I, I do think that, that we should expect to see that at some point uh, relatively soon. Uh, and then the other thing uh, to to mention is that as you know, iron ore is approaching the $100 mark, albeit temporarily, it may not stay up here. The profit margin for the mills will start to be squeezed uh, quite aggressively. They've had a reasonably good run uh, up to this point, but with prices ticking up and up and up, uh, those those margins will start to get uh, eaten into quite quickly. Um, so we should see some impact uh, on pricing uh, being reflected in the next week or so, or maybe maybe a little bit longer uh, time frame. But it's yeah, it's it's um, finally finally come to an end. I think uh, so. We'll, we'll see now. I, th- I think there's there've been a lot of shorts in the market that have been waiting for this to to come to fruition, and uh, it's taken a lot longer than um, than they would have expected. Um, and I think it will be interesting to watch now what happens with uh, with the DCE contract, the onshore contract relative to the international SGX contract. Whether there is any pricing disconnect um, as as we as we move forward uh, with with what's going on in Brazil, uh, and whether you know, there is enough onshore uh, supply at the moment to maintain what China is what China is doing. So interesting times. Um, and we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks, but but broadly speaking, the story is finally finally the uh, the iron ore price uh, does what we've been expecting it to do. <laughs> it, it has been a market we have um, followed quite quite closely, and it's been the kind of regular feature on this podcast. Of we started at the in the midst of this crisis, and it's been the one which has just kept on going up, and it's now got into that stage of well, we're not sure anymore because we did talk last week about the back end of the curve having weakness <laughs> back into this year having weakness so it'd be as you say interesting yeah. to see how that continues but Kerry we, Tom talked about the the problems in Brazil and that has now become the kind of hotbed of this virus crisis we talked about that impact that it had on dry freight last week are we yeah. still seeing that kind of impact things or well, is it continuing it's a very a slow cries up brief moment of optimism actually at the end of the last week uh we had a few more fixtures coming out of Brazil with uh, uh, on that Brazil-China route, the C3 route done on Voyage. As Valley came into the market to take a few more capes uh, and then slightly higher levels at $8.50 uh, for June loading stems and, uh, and $10.30 reported for July loadings. Uh, this gave the market uh, a brief glimmer of optimism and briefly drove the time charter average up as well. Ironically, you know, it's, it's worth noting that a lot of that price increase on the voyage rates will have been uh, accounted for by the, uh, the steady rise in, in bunker prices um, as, as oil prices have recovered a bit. Uh, so, you know, that didn't need to necessarily translate into, into time charter rates, but it injected some positive sentiment into the market, I think. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think these concerns about Brazil continue to deepen. Uh, people, you know, looking towards the futures were realizing that the contango uh, to the June were, were far too steep. And in fact, today, we've suddenly seen that June start to sell off, uh, come off about $750 today just on that June contract. Um, the time charter average itself on the capes has started to fall now. Back down below 4000 we're at uh, 3786 today, I believe, for the 5TC average. And there's really no sign that it won't fall further in the, in the coming few days. So, you know, once again, a brief attempt to get off life support for the capes, uh, you know, meets with, uh, unfortunately, uh, these, uh, these deep concerns about Brazil's 
ability to continue its exports and the generally over tonnage situation in the market. I guess um, good just to quickly uh, touch on on the oil markets. You're talking about bunkers. Just to give an update to people on that, we ha- we have seen Brent push above thirty six dollars, but it, as you said, it's a slow and steady recovery, which has been driven by those those cuts. Ones which we've seen now. Uh, Russia came out the other day saying it's it's dropped to its target of eight point five million barrels per day of production for May and June. United States, the rig count is dropping. It's now a record low at 318. So we're really seeing that kind of supply glut being taken away, especially in the US, uh, which has obviously had an impact on uh, on fuel oil prices, as you mentioned, and for freight. Uh, but being capped at the moment at the Hong Kong News, the article which I outlined uh, earlier in the podcast. But let's, let's move you on to, to air freight. Kerry as our, our flying expert. Um, it was not good news for the last couple of weeks for air freight. Are we, are we still seeing that there? We are still seeing that. Uh, you know, we're still seeing, we're running into a lot of uncertainty here, along with an expected decline in prices, as as I've said for a long time, the uh, the, the necessary PPE shipments, uh, which have been keeping prices so massively high from China to Europe and the States begin to tail off. At the same time, you've got to look and think that airlines globally have racked up $123 billion of debt just during this uh, COVID crisis. Uh and according to an IATA forecast uh, today, that could amount to uh, $550 billion in debt by the end of the year, which will leave all of these airlines much less profitable, even if passenger traffic was to return tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, as of the week ending 3rd May, 55% of all passenger aircraft worldwide have been grounded um, with a, a commensurate reduction in revenue. So, you know, air cargo will be the driving force behind any airline success over the next 24 months, but it's very, very difficult to say where that's going to go right now. Uh, one last bit of uncertainty that's been injected into the market is that the uh, number of hours that freighters have been flying have been drastically accelerated. Um, and this has accelerated the time frame for what's called their C-checks. These are the heavy maintenance checks that uh, keep these aircraft on the ground for a couple of weeks at a time. Uh, and so this looks set to, uh, to see another unknown added in terms of supply um, and how many freighters are available uh, for this air cargo in the, uh, in the coming weeks and months. Cool. Thank, thank you, Kerry. Let's, let's go on to our main feature of the week, uh, Japanese power, to bring you back in, Julie. I don't know if you want to kind of explain to us how you got into the power markets and how you've got into being involved in the Japanese power market. Yeah, I'll give a brief introduction about what I've done first. So I joined the UK power industry back in 1997 when the UK market and all the rest of the European markets were deregulating. So that means that competition was introduced into power trading and it meant that customers could then choose which supplier they wanted to go to for the for the power. And that meant that there was a a ready-made wholesale power market for people to trade. So I worked in that industry since 1997. I moved to RWE in 2002, where I worked for 17 years on various trading desks. Uh, The interesting one really from this perspective was the past four years that I was there from 2015. I was in Singapore for four years, heading up the Asian power desk uh, trading Australian power initially and New Zealand and Singapore power 
but also looking at the newly deregulated Japanese power market. Now, that market deregulated in 2016. So a similar situation to what we had in the UK in 1997-98 is, is happening at the moment in Japan. And so as Japan is, it's got potential to be one of the biggest power markets in the world, the demand of electricity over there is comparable to the UK and Germany combined. So it is a big market. They've also got big fuel diversity. So they're big users and importers of oil, LNG and coal. So what you find is that any changes in the behavior of the Japanese companies for the purchasing of these fuels can have an impact on the global price of, of the fuels. So a lot of companies around the world are really interested to understand what's happening in Japan. And so I was looking at entering the Japanese power market for trading. However, the, initially, upon deregulation, there wasn't a wholesale market set up straight away. And that's been brought to the forefront recently, where, where last week the European Energy Exchange have launched a Japanese power future. And that makes it very easy for traders outside of Japan to access the market. So a lot of companies in Europe especially have access to EEX for trading German power or any of their other products. So already have processes set up and a lot of companies have set up to, to join the, the Japanese power market. Um, other things that are interesting is they've got great weather diversity over there. So they've got very cold winters, very hot summers. There's nine different regions which are interconnected with each other. So a lot of opportunities for interesting trading strategies, including spark spread strategies, dark spread strategies. And so I left RWE about 18 months ago. And since then, I've been working as a consultant helping companies, either Asian companies set up trading desks in Europe or European companies set up desks in, in Asia, such as Japan or Australia mainly. And so I've been following still the developments of this. Um, I don't know whether you had any specific questions you wanted to ask about. Yeah. So I was just going to drop in and talk about, I, I know that Japan as a country has been geographically hamstrung by the fact that it has uh, very few raw materials. I just wanted to ask, in terms of Japanese power production, uh, where does it get the kind of energy from and what is the kind of makeup of how it produces it? Yeah, well, historically, the Japanese government have been very hot on diversity of supply of energy for, for Japan. So they always wanted to ensure, because they don't have natural resources in energy, they wanted to ensure that the spread of fuels, of imports, is split to different uh, fuels. So they have a large proportion of LNG. They have oil generation, coal generation, and obviously they had nuclear generation, which has been reduced since the disaster in 2011. And increasingly, they're using more and more uh, renewable energy. So that makes it a very interesting market for analysis because you need to understand all of the different fuels and the relative prices of the different fuels against each other. Yeah, and what was the, the, the kind of factors which has pushed? Because you, you mentioned the UK deregulated in 97 and now Japan in 2016. What factors have kind of pushed Japan towards that decision and especially the setting up of the contract in Europe, as you mentioned? I think that the Fukushima disaster was the, the, the big thing that made a difference to the, the Japanese government to really push to get 
more competition in, in energy. Um, since then, they, I mean, they have been looking at deregulation for a long time before that, and they're very, very slow to get it done. But that really gave them the incentive to push forward with it and introduce new policies. And then finally, they did do that in 2016. Uh, Tom, you got any questions at all? Yeah, um, I presume, Julia, like you mentioned that obviously the European utilities and traders, etc., um, and energy producers are looking at this market. Do you envisage it trading in a in a similar fashion to uh, the way the European power markets have developed uh, or the Aussie power markets have developed, or do you think it will, um, because of that energy diversity and the the season spread that it's got? relative to sort of comparable comparable power markets, do you think it will end up trading very, very differently? No, I think it should really follow similar path to what we've seen in Europe. But the thing that I would say should be different is you should see it happen quicker. It should develop quicker now that the market has launched because when we, if you go back to the 90s, when we were deregulating over in Europe, then there wasn't really any expertise to learn from. So myself as a trader and the other trading colleagues from other companies, we we weren't experienced traders. We were new to it because there hadn't been any European power markets before. So we had to learn bit by bit and we didn't know what the perfect, perfectly designed power market would look like. Whereas Japan are in a fantastic position that they can cherry pick the best of, of the markets that are out there. So they can look at the UK, they can look at Germany, they can look at Australia, which has a, a, a good a power market. Um, and they can learn from what's happened over there and implement <clears throat> much quicker, I would say. Uh, and and do you, the sort of appetite from your conversations that you've been having with potential users of this contract in Japan, um, our experience with Japanese companies of late in the last sort of more recent history, sort of the last three to five years, has been that there's, they haven't been as heavily involved in risk management and derivatives in the commodity sector, certainly, as, as they have been historically. Um, is that attitude changing, do you think, or is it still very much a big education piece in, in Japan? It's definitely some companies which are quite behind on risk management, and that, that is a matter of them learning about that and, and receiving education. But there's quite a widespread, I would say, that there's some companies that are quite advanced. What I would say is uh, the Japanese people are very keen to learn and they've got some really smart people so they will mm. i think they'll learn that very quickly and, that, and i've seen that with the companies that have internally got the right policies in place and the appetite to be involved in the market and use the product use the futures as a risk management tool because I, I mean that would indicates one thing because you would typically see japanese companies be they're not big gamblers. They're risk-averse companies, typically. Yeah. Um, and they some companies will see a trading market as a negative thing. They'll see it as speculation, as, as gambling. But the smart ones, they see it as it's a risk management tool. So you can actually reduce your risk by trading rather than increase your risk. And I think yeah. it's that message getting out to more Japanese companies. The other thing that's common in Japan is that there's... Often you don't find someone wants to go first in terms of the competitors. So if you look at the utilities, they'll all sort of hold back and wait for the first mover. And there has been one of the utilities that's really 
taken that forward and have been way ahead of the other utilities. And I think the utilities that are not involved will look to see what the competitors are doing and they will learn from that and they will also then say, it's working for them, we need to now get involved. So it, it is going to be a bit of a process to get more people involved, but it's definitely changing. We've, we've seen very similar in the in the shipping derivatives, that sort of first mover sparks uh, multiple participants suddenly yeah. Yeah. getting interested very quickly. Absolutely. Kerry, any questions from you or for from Alex? Not no, from no, not from Alex. Kerry, any from you? Uh, no, I think Julie's covered everything I had planned to ask. Cool. Thank you very much. So we move from a market which we have Julie to tell us all the answers to, to a market which we probably know nothing about. And I've done our random market of the week, which this week is potato futures. So for those interested, the, the index is known as the European Processing Potato Index. Try saying that with three potatoes in your mouth. Uh, and it is the market price for processing potatoes for the production of chips within the EEA. Are they uh, European chips or American chips? They are European chips. Are there uh, any Russian potatoes involved? Because there I think you've got to put them in the oven for quite a while, those ones. No, no, no. Like those puns, we, we shouldn't have any of those in this index. It's got to be quite a tough industry, though, because I imagine you turn up for work on the first day and they give you the sack. <laughs> so there is a four-way split, 25% each, of Germany, France, Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, who contributed? Yeah, sorry, someone not Ireland. That's very no Ireland, no Ireland. Yeah. Um, the tuber size must be, must be forty millimeters or more. Uh, there are two types of potatoes uh, usually used in this index, which is Agria and Bincier. I think I have pronounced that incorrectly, but I've tried. And also, comparable types are allowed if they are within the pricing and processing bands. This is financially settled, so you won't be getting any potatoes delivered to you if you've still got position at the end of it. Priced in euros, uh, euros per 100 kilograms uh, in 10 cent increments. And uh, it looks like the coronavirus has had quite an impact on the price negatively. We were, if you look at the 9th of January, we were 14 and a half euros per 100 kilograms. We're now 1.8. There's, there's a huge impact on, on the index the, price. The media hasn't picked up on that. It seems to be a bit of silence of the yams from the media there. <laughs> market's been properly mashed. Yeah, yeah, but they, they are definitely, the market's definitely seen this recover in 21. So if I've picked out some some dates, uh, June 20 contract is uh, 240, two spot 40. November 28, spot 80. April 21, 12. And April 22, 1490. So we've definitely seen this recover into uh, 21 and 22 on the potato futures market. I guess that's the expectation of restaurants starting to open again. I was hearing recently in the news that in the UK, people were hoping that trying to encourage customers to buy more chips because because of all the restaurants that had closed, there was a big oversupply. So, yeah, once the restaurants get open, then we, we might get some some cheap chips. Cheap, yeah, cheapest chips. There we are. And what a, what a way to end this week on that knowledge of... of of Potato Futures. Again, thank you very much to Julie for all your expertise on the power and explaining to us all that's to know about the Japanese power market, which is emerging. Thank you. Thank you again to my regular guests and to everyone else listening. I hope you will join us again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks.